Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. This is not only John Elledge, this is John Elledge doing what he is told is his weird podcast introduction voice. So I learned from my colleague Sarah Manavis in this space last week. No Sarah this week, no New Statesman people at all, in fact. This is one of those rare serious episodes where we're just going to talk to some quite serious, clever people about important things going on in the world rather than, you know, generally pissing about, which is what we do the rest of the time. This week, I am going to speak to Paul Swinney, who you will know by now is head of policy at the Centre for Cities for our Ask the Expert slot, where we are going to answer the question I posed at the end of that slot last time, which is, if size matters, if agglomeration is, is the big thing, then is transport the key to urban prosperity? Is the problem for the north of England simply that, well, there's a lot of people who live up there, they just can't get to the jobs? Basically, what I want to know is, could could a tube system fix anything, if you put your mind to it? Before and indeed after that, though, I am going to be interviewing a guy called Robert Delaney. Not not the Rob Delaney who you may know of as the uh, writer and star of the very fine sitcom Catastrophe. No, this one is another American, though. He f- was for many years a bureau chief for the, the US bureau chief for the South China Morning Post. He spent a lot of his career living in and writing about China. He's got a novel on China coming out, which is uh, why he was kind enough to give me an interview, I think. And, you know, he's been he's been living and working in, in Asia's biggest country for a long time. He's seen a lot of changes since he first moved out there in the early 90s. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to have a conversation about how China and its cities have changed. So, without further ado, let's get on with it. How did you end up with, with China as one of your specialisms? What was it that first took you to China? Uh, it was really just trying to get away from the U.S., to be honest. I- I'd gone all through four years of university living at home, and uh, I'm I, from the suburbs of Philadelphia, the suburbs being, I, I guess by the time I, I decided I wanted to go to China, I just decided that I was so sick of suburban America. I wanted something completely different. At the same time, uh, in university, I was taking American studies, and I did an independent study on the martial arts in America. And, of course, in order to do uh, an independent study on the martial arts in America, I had to understand more about Kung Fu and the origins and the philosophy behind it. 
So the more I, I started looking into that, uh, just sort of texts and scholarship and research around Taoism and, and Buddhism, I just became very intrigued with China. And then China really hit the headlines in 1989 with the student uh, uprising in Tiananmen Square. So between all the understanding that I had about about China's history and the current events that were happening, I just it just became became important for me to want to see the country and understand the country better. So you first moved out there in the early 1990s, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. 1992, I went there to start studying Mandarin. And you know, so you went there. China's a, as I understand it, I've never been, but as I understand it, China is a, a pretty big place. So where exactly were you at that point? So I wound up in a city called Wuhu, which makes people kind of uh, snicker a little bit. It's in a province called Anhui. So it is approximately, if, if you're in Shanghai and you just go due west about 200 kilometers, uh, maybe two or 300 kilometers, you'll hit uh, Wuhu. It was kind of a third tier, very industrial city. And it was uh, it was a very strange place to be, but ultimately ended up being a great choice because there weren't uh, any other foreigners there except for a few a handful of missionaries. And I just wasn't really interested in hanging out with the missionaries. So that's that's kind of where I started. So what was it like in uh, I mean, I, I have no I at least have kind of like a sort of mental conception of what, what some of the bigger Chinese cities might be like now, but I have absolutely no idea what kind of a sort of, you know, a mid-table Chinese city would look like in 1992. I mean, just physically, can you kind of like paint us a bit of a picture? Yeah, just depressing. I mean, first of all, there's just, again, we're going back to 1992, so it was a long time ago. Wuhu probably looks very different now, but at the time it was, you would walk down the streets and uh, everything had kind of a coating of grime on it because at that time, the prosperity hadn't really come to China yet, so there wasn't. You would just have buildings that were just extremely utilitarian. They were just very basic brick structures. For many of them, you have, especially residential buildings, you'd, you'd have sort of like a communal kitchen. There would be department stores. That you would see like department store number four, department store number seven. Sometimes it's seemed kind of random in, in, in how they were numbered and where they were spread out. The streets were just, you, you would have these large public buses because not, I mean, at that time, no one really had, there were no private cars. So you would either have these government black sedans or you would have these giant buses that were, uh, that were hooked up to the, to the electrical lines, which gave them their, their power. And they would rattle so it was very street level was very noisy. I mean, you say it's about two, three hundred kilometers from Shanghai, which is, in Chinese terms, not not that far. Did did the big city feel close? Did it feel like you're in the orbit of Shanghai, or did it just feel like you're a long way from? No, it it felt completely separated because at that time, to get from Wuhu to Shanghai would have taken the entire day. So it would have taken I, it took about eight or nine hours. Whereas today, it would probably take you two hours tops to get there. But at that time, it, it felt very separate. It was just the only economic activity, the only economic kind of pickup that was happening at that time was just starting. Of course, in southern China, around like uh, Guangzhou, the cities near Hong Kong, there was a lot already starting to happen. 
Shanghai also was starting to attract more foreign investment. Beijing, there was more going on. But in places like that, anywhere outside of those large cities, like right on the coast, there was there was still nothing happening. There was they were still kind of waiting for prosperity and foreign investment to start to, to from the money from that, the proceeds from that to start filtering into places like Wuhu and, and start to change them so that they would look something different from, I mean, Wuhu, when, when I saw it in 1992, was not too much different from how it would have looked 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier or possibly 30 years earlier. It sort of feels like the West only becomes aware of China and its kind of economic reforms in a big way, perhaps in the late 1990s or even maybe early in this century. Like, did it feel like the country was moving towards this kind of more capitalistic approach to, to economics? Could you feel that kind of change coming in 1992? I didn't feel that change when I was in Wuhu in 1992, but I did start to feel that change. So two years later, I was uh, I was doing a program. It was a Johns Hopkins University program, their School of Advanced International Studies. So I did one year there, so, and it was after I was studying Chinese. So and then I that was in the city of Nanjing, which is probably it's somewhere between Wuhu and Shanghai. So so Nanjing and this would have been 1994, 1995 was much more in the orbit of Shanghai because it was closer geographically. And you could feel in, in that one academic year that I spent in Nanjing, you could see if by the end of the year, the city was already there were more things to do at the beginning of the year. You, we would just go to the local uh, street corner fried rice and fried noodle cellar for lunch every day. By the end of that year, there were things like I, I remember toward the very end of the semester, there was a, a there was a pub that opened up and it was it was like a proper English pub and it had beer on tap. And it was it was a tremendously exciting for all of the students to go out to a place like that because we just never had those options. It's not that we sort of felt like we were deprived for just having to sort of kind of the, the traditional fare and, and no other more interesting options, uh, because that was just part of the experience there of being a student. But by, you know, again, by the end of the year, there were all of these other options opening up for us. Of course, also as students, it, it was great in one sense, but it was a little bit frustrating in another sense, because we all arrived there on a student budget, you know, knowing that we wouldn't need to spend more than, I forget exactly how much it was, but you know, when, when you get these more exciting options to go out and have fun, of course, the price points are going up. So we kind of had to be careful about how often we went there. But but that was an example of how how we really felt like things were starting to change at, at that time. Mm. I mean, Nanjing is, as I understand it, is one of those Chinese cities of which there are quite a large number that most Westerners probably couldn't name, let alone point to on a map, but which is about the size of London now, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's, yes. it's an enormous city that most people on this side of the globe just have no idea is is there. Yeah, I remember, I think it was, now I've been out of China for 12 years now, but I remember at that time, it was in 2006, I guess, when I was leaving, there were already more than 100 cities in China that has more than a million people. So, you know, if you consider in, in most countries, cities of more than a million people, you've got maybe a handful of them, maybe only one or two. But in China, there's more than 100 of those. And Nanjing would, would have been one of those. And of course, yes, today, the population of Nanjing could probably, I, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, I don't have them in front of me, but it would probably be somewhere on the scale of London, yes. Mm. So if you were there from 
92 to 2006 give or take i mean how much change did you see in that time like could you did you literally see cities physically transform before my eyes it was it was kind of dizzying to be honest in the example of nanjing so i finished studying there in the spring of 1995 and then i went back there how many years later was it i guess it would have been maybe 5 years later and the entire neighborhood that my school was on was different i mean it wasn't just that a few new buildings had gone up. They had just leveled the entire neighborhood, except, of course, for the Hopkins Nanjing Center where I was studying. So I didn't recognize it. It was almost like they took the school that I went to and just plopped it down into a new city. And then I showed up. And that kind of change was not unusual. And, uh, of course, when I was living in Beijing, uh, I, I moved around to a, a bunch of cities. But my last five years in China were in Beijing. And I remember that five-year period. The neighborhood around where I lived, there was just it was just constant construction. I mean, there were just buildings coming down every month. There would be a new corner of the neighborhood that was just gone. And then it would turn into a construction site. And then maybe maybe half a year later, maybe a year later, there would be a bright, gleaming new building there. And it just happened all the time. Sure, sure. I mean, one of the most basic ways in which cities can change is like the physical height of them changes. I mean, we cities moving from low rise to high rise. Well, Beijing's a, a little bit of a strange case because, yes, a lot of high-rises uh, did start going up in Beijing, but much like Washington, D.C., around the, the government compounds around the center of the city, you're, the regulations stipulate that you can't go very high. So it's a very low-slung city in the center, but then as you move out, as you get farther away from the government compounds, there are a bunch of high-rises that start going up. And for example, the, the, I, I was working at Bloomberg News when I was in Beijing for that final stint. And there was, well, there was a, it was called the China World Center. It was the first place where most of the foreign companies that were opening headquarters in Beijing or their, their Beijing representative offices, they were opening them in the China World Center. There was a phase one, there was, then there was a phase two. Now, I think it was about a year or two ago, they completed phase three, and it's marked by a skyscraper that's just, inc it's, it, it's immense. It's, it's really impressive to see. I'm curious, you say you moved around through various cities. I mean, can you kind of give us a, a sense of like the different regions and cities and like the, how they're perceived within China? Again, there's a big difference between what was going on, I mean, certainly up until Several years ago, there was a big difference between the large cities on the East Coast and inland. So uh, if you went to, say, a place like Xi'an, which is uh, which is sort of north central China, until maybe 10 years ago, you could you could feel it was different. You might still see donkeys pulling carts through the city of Xi'an or perhaps uh, certainly way inland in, in Xinjiang. You've got the city of Urumqi. That feels almost it feels more like a, a central. You, you really feel more like you're in Central Asia than you do like you're in China. However, over the past 10, 11, 12 years, I would say there's been so much of an effort by the Chinese government to to balance out the, the wealth and the economic growth that that large difference that you would have seen 10, 15 years ago between the, the large East Coast cities and inland cities is rapidly disappearing. Again, there's so much effort to bring wealth inland. But of course, bringing wealth inland means that 
they're just they, they want to make sure that the city has a proper modern face on it. They want to make sure that they that that large companies, usually they're state owned companies and state owned developments are putting up buildings there that are just as impressive as as what have what we've seen going up in places like Shanghai and Guangzhou and Beijing for the past 20 years. But I guess I'm, I'm asking a slightly different question, which is, you know, I, if I think about the United States, I kind of have an idea that New York is like skyscrapers and media and finance. And, you know, Los Angeles is, is entertainment and D.C. is politics and Detroit used to be cars and it's now a bit of a wreck. You know, I kind of have this. I'm kind of curious if you can maybe talk us through, like, what do what do some of the bigger Chinese cities represent in that way? Like, do they have those kind of individual identities within China? I would say so. Like if if we talk, for example, just about Beijing and Shanghai, there are differences there because Shanghai has always been just purely it's always been a port city. So it's been purely about commerce and finance. So the pace feels a little bit faster when you're in Shanghai. The way that the, the city was constructed is is a little bit the, the streets are a bit narrower, narrower. It certainly feels more tight as you're trying to get through, whether you're in a bicycle, whether you're in a cab, whether you're walking around. It, it feels more crowded and the pace seems a bit faster. Whereas Beijing, you've got, you know, that's the seat of government. And we all know governments don't work as quickly <laughs> as commerce. So the feeling is more that way. And also uh, the way that the, the way the city is laid out is very different. The, the avenues are incredibly broad in Beijing. They, so they have to put up, like, for example, these sprawling uh, pedestrian bridges over these giant intersections. And, you know, really to get from one corner of the intersection, in some cases, to the opposite corner is, you know, it might take you about five minutes to get to, sort of to get across the street. Whereas in Shanghai, you're kind of zipping back and forth. Yeah, so, so I would say that Shanghai, the, the flavor of it is does feel like it's more of a commercial city. Beijing does feel more like an official city. Mm. And what about some of the kind of, obviously those are the big two, but what about some of the next tier of cities? I mean, what, can you tell us about any of those? Sure. Well, I, I would say once you get to the next tier of cities, it kind of feels the same. It's always just hotels, office buildings, residential developments that all kind of feel the same. I, I mean, I would say when I was traveling around in, in between my periods of study, I would travel around and kind of backpack around. And 20 years ago, there I, I felt more of a difference. Like, for example, in the southwest, you've got Kunming. And there was something about you could see there, there was a there was a regional style of architecture there. And and I think it had a lot to do with just the the, the weather of Kunming. It's it's southwest, so it's it's warmer. It's uh, it's 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 wetter. So there's certain building techniques, and you would see you you it kind of felt a, a little more rustic. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Then say uh, a second tier city in the Northeast where you would have, it would just be kind of more concrete and it would feel, uh, it would feel more sort of like what you imagine from like a, a post a communist and then to like a post-communist city. So there was that kind of difference. But again, that was 20 years ago when I would notice that. Whereas now it's, uh, you know, again, you've got these very large property development companies and they do, they're, they're putting up developments in every big city and they all kind of look the same. So I, you, you don't feel that once you get to that second tier of city, you, you don't, my observation was that it didn't seem as different as it used to be. Something I've been told, which may be wrong, so I may be about to make an incredibly ignorant comment, but something I have heard is that within China, there is kind of less interest in the protecting heritage than you generally get in, in Europe, for example. And so a lot of a lot of older buildings have have been kind of demolished in this kind of rush towards modernization. Does that does that fit with your experience? It's true. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in Beijing, just as an example, in Beijing, for hundreds of years, there were traditional neighborhoods. They were called the hutongs. And the hutongs were sort of like a, a maze, almost like a warren, if you will, of, of a neighborhood. It's just a, a network of alleys and they don't make a lot of sense. You kind of just have to know where you are from having grown up there. And the, the homes were uh, were courtyard homes. So you would have rooms that's connected in a square and then a courtyard in, in the center. And most of Beijing was composed of this kind of neighborhood, uh, say, you know, up to early this century. And then really over the past 20 years, they've been just knocking most of them down. However, the, the authorities do recognize that the Hutong neighborhoods are actually a huge tourist draw. So there are there are still sections in Beijing of Hutong housing that they've realized that they need to preserve. So there's there's a real effort to keep all of that intact. But it's sort of becoming the, the area now feels more like a tourist attraction than an authentic neighborhood, which is the problem with, with that approach. I was going to say, it sounds quite utilitarian it's like you know it, this this architecture is serving a specific purpose there's kind of no sentimentality about preserving something just because it's old it's purely like what is it for in today's world yeah exactly and i think you know that that really dredges up a debate too because in the old hutong neighborhoods there was no, you didn't have plumbing i mean you had the they're basically communal bathrooms that all of the residents used and they weren't built for you, you, you couldn't 
just things like uh, basic plumbing, electrical uh, systems were all very difficult to install. So there are quite a lot. It's not like the government wants to knock them down because they think it's bad and all the people are angry about it. Actually, I would say most of the people in those neighborhoods were quite happy to move into a new modern building that had air conditioning and heat and uh, and and modern plumbing and and uh, modern bathrooms. So it's a complex issue. Uh, historical preservation, preservation of neighborhoods in China is a difficult issue because the a lot of the historic and neighborhoods are they're very difficult to bring them into to to kind of conduct modern living in them. So here we are again in the offices of the uh, Centre for Cities in London's glamorous London Bridge district. Last week in, in our RC expert slot with Paul Swinney, Director of Policy, I ended on cliffhanger. I posed a question, you know, is one of the reasons that agglomeration theory, which suggests that larger cities should be more productive, is one of the reasons that that doesn't really hold true in English cities that most of them have bloody terrible public transport systems, thus making it almost incredibly difficult for, for people to get to jobs, and effectively meaning that the two point however many million people living in Greater Manchester do not really live in a single place. They just happen to live quite close to each other without it being useful. So that was our, that was our cliffhanger. I'm sure you've been on the edge of your seats all over the festive period waiting for an answer to that one. So let's find out what that answer is. Hello, Paul. How are you? Yes, I'm all right. Thank you. I apologise to the, to the listeners that they've had to endure a terrible Christmas waiting for this answer. I'm glad we can put them out of their misery now. I just can't enjoy the turkey, Martha. It's just, <laughs> just need to know the answer. Anyway, so... Transport. Is this the key thing that's kind of mucking up English cities by meaning that, you know, effectively there aren't two million people in Greater Manchester. There's just like a lot of different places next to each other. Is, is this the problem here? So it's definitely one of the problems. Of course, there isn't ever one uh, individual issue within this very complicated area, but transport or crucially, as you're alluding to, John, transport within cities, I think, is, is very, very important. Now, the question, well, why is that? Well, let's think about why businesses locate where they do, particularly high-skilled businesses. You know, they're going to locate somewhere where they know they can get the workers that they, they need. You know, you're not going to go and set up in the middle of Cumbria if you're a, a big uh, services company because you're just not going to have the number of people there to, to employ. You most likely go and set up in a, in a city that can s- supply those types of workers. And that alludes back to or the agglomeration theory that we spoke about last time. Now, what's the role of transport within that? Well, people need to get the jobs. And if you've got a transport system that connects people to jobs, what you're doing is you're increasing the pool of workers that businesses can recruit from. You're uh, increasing the number of job opportunities that any one person get access to. And so having that strong public transport system, you know, eases that. You know, it, it sort of builds on the benefits of being within a city. So it's a crucial part of uh, making sure that both firms and workers can be best matched to, to the types of, of jobs and employees that will both increase their wages but also push on the, the profit of those businesses. And the decent transport system does sort of increase what's known as the, the functional footprint of a city, right? So like London, modern Greater London is composed of what was historically a huge number of different towns and villages, but they are now all a single entity because it is very easy to get from all these places to each other, but, you know. And that doesn't really hold true in a lot of places, right? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if you look at the 
certainly London has benefited, I think, from historic transport investment. You know, the tube links, you know, many parts of what is a, a pretty large geographic area together. And then you've got all the national rail lines that run into London too, the commuter lines mm. coming in, which means that that, you know, that fuels sort of the growth of London because you've got all this this raw input of workers, you know, brains, you know, jumping on trains every day, coming into, into central London. That pushes on the performance of, of London's economy. I think your description of, of say, other places where, to some extent, actually just a number of individual places living cheek by jowl rather than functioning as, as one economy, I think rings true. And that's partly because you haven't got a public transport system that helps mesh them together. What I find so curious is that, you know, we have a, a lot of discussions, I think, in the UK around transport, particularly about transport spending within London compared to elsewhere. And there are big issues with those statistics, but we're not going to, to them now. Uh, and people say, it's not fair, we just need to spend more money in other places. And yet nobody ever really raises the issue about how transport within London is managed. I think that's one of the key differences here in that we've got Transport for London uh, manages many different modes of transport. They're all integrated, which means that the system works pretty well. I'm sure we could tweak it around the margins, but we don't have that elsewhere. You know, perhaps you've got transport for Greater Manchester, but that hasn't got the same powers that London's got. Transport for the West Midlands, again, it hasn't got the same powers as what London's got. We should be thinking about, well, how do you try and improve, you know, these, these intercity transport links and management is, is one of them. And that's a fairly cost-free um, policy we've been putting in place for it. I'm now going to start arguing with my own hypothesis here with a couple of counter-examples. One is, like, agglomeration theory does seem to largely hold true in the United States. A lot of US cities don't are not known for their public transport systems, right? If you look at like I mean the most obvious example is Los Angeles, which is entirely built around the car. And anyone who, who has seen who framed Roger Rabbit will, will know they ripped up the, the streetcars many decades ago. Los Angeles seems to be doing all right. So like is public transport like basically am I is this just confirmation bias on my part? I really like trains. So is it that I want trains to be the answer and so I'm seeing the need for tube maps everywhere? Well, I mean, there could be partly that. I know how much you love a good you love a good tube map. I do love a good tube, yeah. <laughs> but I think the you know Los Angeles example probably points to well, good transport. And I think perhaps the distinction between public and private transport is is something we get to perhaps further down the line. If a city's got good transport and actually people can get round via car, that means you're still linking people to, to jobs and businesses to, to employees. That's a good thing. You know, it isn't necessarily the case that it must be public transport. But I think where we then... So, get- sorry, do you think it's the, the point is that like Los Angeles still has this enormous freeway system making it possible to cover huge distances, even if like sometimes there are traffic jams or whatever... Whereas like older cities like Greater Manchester, you can't really replicate that. Basically. Precisely. Sure. Or if you were to say, look at New York, then you probably couldn't apply the same, um, the same sort of road transport layout as what you've got in, in, say, Los Angeles. Why is that? That's because you've got a huge concentration of activity in a very, very small area on Manhattan Island, which means that it's pretty much impossible to get there by private transport. The most efficient way to get in there is by, mm. by public transport. Indeed, that's what happens in London and that's what happens in New York, but perhaps doesn't happen within Los Angeles because of the different way that they're configured. Okay. My other countering example, arguing with myself a bit here, is there are a couple of uh, English conurbations with... Well, and the British conurbations, as people go, with fairly decent transport systems. If you look at uh, Glasgow, which is why I corrected myself, it obviously has the, the, the subway, but it has, I think, the most extensive commuter rail network outside London, anywhere in the UK. 
If you look at Liverpool, as is underground network and a decent commuter rail system going into that. If you look at t- the Tyne and Weir conurbation in the northeast, where you were born and bred and where I recently visited, that's got a, a decent metro. It's not. It, it doesn't cover the whole city, but it's you know it's it covers quite a lot of places. None of those places I just listed are, are what one would call economic powerhouses right now. So it's clearly not the whole picture, is it? So it's definitely only one part of it for sure. And I think having good transport networks within a city only really sort of pays off if you've got lots of high skilled workers there as well, if you've got a planning system that sort of facilitates economic development and attracting in high paid jobs too. So yes, it's only one element of it, but probably even within those transport systems that you've listed, I mean, it's great that they're there, if you were to compare them to the, the quality of transport within London, I mean, the miles behind, to pardon the pun, where London is on this. And it's always curious to think when I go and get the, uh, get the Tyne and Weir Metro, whenever I'm, I'm back home, it trundles up and, you know, it's two carriages. And mm. I get down the platform at, at Newcastle Central and it says 15 minutes to the next train to South Hilton to get it through to Sunderland. And it's like, all oh, right, OK. So, you know, it's great, it's there. Where you sort of get into this habit within London, which, you know, partly because of the density of London, we can sustain this. You walk to the tube station, you're not really bothered about any sort of timetable. You walk down and the next tube is, is one minute away and I know it comes in and it's sort of seven carriages long. You know, it's, you, sort of, you, you get on the Victoria Line platform and it's one minute to Waltham store or the next Waltham store train. It's like, one minute? This is outrageous. Why is it not here now? But, you know, you go elsewhere in the country and you're waiting quite a, quite a lot longer. So it's great that they're there. They have to be improved, first off. And then second off, you know, there are other issues within these places too, particularly around skills and the people who live there that, uh, that we need to improve as well. So to sum up, there's more to a decent transport system than a tube map. There certainly is. Thank you, Paul. We'll see you next time. So you said that your, your novel is in part concerned with the, the skyline of Beijing. Do you want to kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah. So as I said, the when I was living there, neighborhoods were constantly in flux in a way that I had never experienced before. It was just you never knew what your neighborhood was going to look like six months hence. So and and it was all part of the huge economic transformation that was happening. I mean, China's economy was growing, especially around like 2004, 2005, 2006. It was growing like 13% a year. And you could, and you could see these translating into a different skyline in Beijing and, and different growth and transformation everywhere you looked. And the idea I had was that kind of takes a toll psychologically. You, you never, it's kind of disorienting you where you never really know where you stand when, when the physical city that you're in is, is constantly changing because your setting is always is changing. So I just thought, you know, there, there are lots of, there's so many good books about China's economic growth and the consequences of China's economic growth and what it means for other economies and geopolitical strategies. So I just thought the w- one thing for me that's missing is w- what does it mean for people who live in the middle of all this to, to see this, the, this, uh, this kind of dr- very dramatic, very fast change? So how does it affect the characters? How does it affect their psychology? How does it affect their interpersonal relationships? So that's that. So that's kind of there's a lot of that in in the book, and and that transformation is always in the background in in many of the scenes. And is this based on like conversations with with people you would have when you were when you were based in China with with the locals and so on? 
it was sort of based on what I would see on the ground level. Like I would walk to work and I would see older neighborhoods. We, we talked about the old Hutong neighborhoods, which are hundreds of years old. There's also the the generation of the, the 60s, like after the revolution, where lots of work, very extremely utilitarian worker housing went up. And no one feels sentimental about that because, again, it's just straight up brick buildings that there's nothing really special about them. And the government was in was was in a hurry to knock all of them down and put in their place shopping centers with you know high end shopping hotels and, and also higher end buildings. And there were I did see communities. I would occasionally see protests from uh, from residents, from people who had grown up and lived in those neighborhoods, even though they were very sparse and very unimpressive. They, nonetheless, they formed communities there and they didn't want to see them knocked down or at least they wanted a stake in what was going uh, what was going to replace them. And so just from just from my own observations, because of those observations, I wanted to write this. Uh, and also, it was always a subject of, you know, among the expat community in Beijing, it was always a debate about, does it make sense to be just plowing down entire neighborhoods? And some people would sort of have anecdotes about this this family they knew, they didn't want to move, they're, they're trying to hold out, but there's nothing they can do. So I had kind of been exposed to enough of that to realize that it's it's worthy of a kind of a the subtext of 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 a book. Just to wrap up, can you maybe sort of tell us uh, what's your favorite Chinese city and why? Beijing is my favorite Chinese city, and that's just because there's there's such a variety of people there. You have, of course, you have the economists, and you've got the the business people who are representing global companies. And as a journalist, it was important for me to stay in touch with them. Um, but at the same time, you had there were corners of Beijing where you could find uh, where you could get to know artists. There were a lot of NGOs. So there were different people that were engaged in different kind of they had different agendas and, and, and different ideas. So it was just sort of that nexus of, of everything. Um, there is the, the government, there's the art world, there's the business world, and they're all, they're all kind of mingling. The city, as much as it can, does try to cater to all of those uh, to, to all of those interests, and that's why I think it that that's why I like it. Thank you very much for for talking to us. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.